Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode seven of Fan Fuel, a podcast where fans fuel talk about motorsports. Today, we'll talk about broadcasting in motorsports and how it's important and why the broadcasters themselves matter. But first, we'll talk about the racing that went on this past weekend in the Diamond in the Desert. We had two series racing this weekend. First off was the Xfinity race on Saturday. And, uh, you know, Nathan, we saw Austin Cindric win, and it was kind of not a surprise, but how was the racing itself? Did it surprise you? Uh, no, I thought it was a decent race as usual. I mean, they rarely put on a bad race in Xfinity, so... I would probably say the same thing you do when it comes to the surprise of Cindric. That's definitely not a shock to anyone. Because I was, you, you know me, I was the one hyping up. You know, he could win 10 races, he could win 10 races. and He's already two-tenths of the way there. So not to jinx him or anything, but he's, he's well on his way. Yeah, and I don't really see him as having that much competition so far this season. I mean, you know, we've seen a little bit of light from uh, maybe A.J. Allmendinger and, of course, Ty Gibbs with his surprise win at the road course. But I think his main rival going into this year, from my standpoint at least, was going to be Noah Gragson. But he's not shown up at all this year because of the bad luck that he's had. Yeah, I'll definitely add on to that. I mean, I've never seen a driver with such bad luck in quite a while to start off a year he said what taking out in daytona he was i'm not sure what happened to him at the road course i'm pretty sure he was sent multiple laps down before the race even started there um homestead was pretty self-explanatory that was probably the worst example of luck i've seen from him and then he blew an engine at phoenix so it's just a it's a shame i honestly think that his speed is there like it's nowhere near his issue i think it's just things out of his control yeah and uh i mean some i would say some of the stuff could be potentially in his control um but that's more of his off-track antics that we've already discussed earlier this year Mm -hmm. than anything um i was listening to the dale jr download uh earlier this week and one of the episodes from this year jr said that he told noah to um to just, you know, go out there and do his thing. And he's kind of let the range loose to let him make mistakes and stuff. But I don't know if that's starting to come back and bite him. I mean, it's only five races into the season, but has he even finished one? I think he finished Las Vegas in the Daytona road course, albeit with damage for the road course, I'm pretty sure. But, I mean, hey, at least in this format, if you win, you're locked in. So the the concern about – being say have an average finish at 30th or whatever it's not as big of a deal as it was 10 years ago say so that's i guess the silver lining is that the team has enough speed to win so if they do manage to have a good luck week then they they don't have to worry about it for the rest of the year yeah and they also have 12 spots in xfinity and you have to be in the top 20 in points but i don't think there's 20 competitive cards in xfinity he shouldn't have a problem falling out, even if he does have that 30th place average finish, like you said. Uh, but speaking about Dale Jr. Uh, and Junior Motorsports in general, uh, we saw some action go down uh, with one of their newish drivers, and that was Josh Berry. Of course, Josh drives a late model for Junior and has for quite some time now. He's been given you know the chance to do 10 or 12 races this year. Uh, we saw him do something uh, that's been quite polarizing since Saturday, and that was give two uh, not uh, thumbs up, I guess. 
Oh yeah. That was fun to watch at first. I didn't even know that he did that until someone on Twitter posted a picture of it. And I was like, wait, Fox missed that. And it's a, yeah, I thought that was one of the more entertaining things of the race because it looked like um, looked like Ferrucci kind of got him up out of the groove and then put him in the wall. I mean, I don't think he put him there, but he definitely ran him up the track. So I don't yeah. blame Barry's displeasure at all. Yeah, and uh, I saw a lot of flack just for him across social media uh, because um, he's coming in and and doing idiotic stuff like that. But as far as Santonio Ferrucci, like the guy's got experience in race cars, mostly open wheel cars. So I don't understand why he would push the limit or something, you know, of that manner. Because in open wheels, you touch wheels, you die. I mean, that's a rule. So, I mean, I, I get that there's a little bit of safety net that we're racing stock cars on Saturday, but I, I don't know. It's kind of a boneheaded move, but also kind of just a rookie move that you would expect someone who hasn't been racing that long to make. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I, I don't get the, the hate for him uh, as, as much as... I think it's just part of the, the past actions from Formula 2 that were that sort of stemmed all this, but really aside from the behavior problems that were there, he's a good driver. Like regardless of a person's opinion on him, he's ran top 15 in several Xfinity races now. So clearly the driving talent is not the problem. If he can have a few clean weeks and not have any run-ins, I think he's going to keep getting better, which is pretty shocking considering I don't think anyone expected him to do this well. Well, I mean, he's done pretty well on the IndyCar ovals, too. So, I, yeah, I don't know if that's unexpected, did. but it's something that um, everyone goes through growing pain. I could say mm-hmm. it was a similar situation as the 13 and the 9 at Homestead. You know, David Starr's tire is corded, and he just, you know, is barreling there trying not to lose a lap. Noah could have hit the brakes and turned down, you know. That's just one of those racing deals that, that – could have probably been avoided, but wasn't. But it shouldn't have really mattered. He shouldn't have got as much flack as he did, from my point of view. Yeah, I agree. It's just part of the growing pains. And he's always been an aggressive driver, so I wasn't surprised at the run-ins. I just think that what I am surprised by is the fact that he's running toward the front this early on. And also, I want to give a shout-out to Jeremy Clements because he finished in the 10th position with my name on the car. So I'm one for one with top 10, so... Well, yeah, I don't money. know. I don't know if you're a good luck charm or what, but uh, it was cool seeing him dice it up in the top ten. I always love it when those those guys that are single car operations or running off their own uh, dollar do good. Right. Brandon Brown finished third. Yeah, and it and he's that been having crazy. a heck of a season. Yeah. So I'm wondering he's, if he's going to make a good playoff run. He's one of those drivers, I think, but. He's turning heads. I mean, even last year, people started to sort of take note of him. I was like, he's a proven commodity, and I wouldn't be surprised if more teams are starting to take notice because I don't know if you heard this. He um, he mentioned something about the JRM guys know we're here now, and it's like you know they're they're a team that's racing up front now for however small or large their budget is. It's very impressive to see. Yeah, so I don't know if if that's his perspective saying that that they might give him help or do you think he's trying to get in a different car so that he doesn't have to spend money on his own team? 
I don't think it was a dig at the team at all. I think he just wanted to show that, look, we're here. We can run up front. We're clearly impressing bigger teams. So anything to really get attention in the sports never a bad thing. Yeah, and and he's been getting attention, like you said, since last year because of the, the great runs he's having. Um, I would love to see more of that from uh, some of the other guys, you know, like Ryan Sieg and, and the aforementioned Jeremy Clements. Um because I, I feel like Xfinity is that, that series that a lot of these owner drivers kind of, I, I hate to use the word, but play in and they can do well. And it's really it's really nice to see the quote-unquote good old boys or the blue-collar guys go out there and show up some of these teams that definitely have cup backing. Yeah, I'm very impressed because Brandon Brown's sort of made his name known among the the single car teams or the underfunded teams that can at least contend for top tens on a regular basis. You know, with that being said, another guy with a bunch of top tens this year um, has been our favorite driver. And that is Denny Hamlin. Uh, He's had four out of five top tens and he has a pretty commanding lead of 39 points over the rest of the field um, this year. And that doesn't really tell the story of what we've been seeing uh, because he's kind of been, that guy that's just kind of been there and somehow is leading the points rather than showing out and coming into victory lane. And of course he didn't get in victory lane this week either. It was his teammate in the 19 of Martin Trucks jr. And he had a pretty big commanding lead on Sunday at the end of that race. Um, but I think despite the fact that he and the 22 were out front at that last run, it was a pretty good race. Yeah, I was impressed with the racing quality. I mean, it's a 750 track, so I was kind of expecting a lot as is. But especially the first couple of stages were great, I thought, because a lot of the cars were very evenly balanced before they got dialed in. I believe there were five – the whole top five was under a second apart toward the end of one of the two stages. So that was cool to me before um, Truex got the car dialed in toward the end of the second stage, and then it was pretty much his race to lose. Yeah, and he did not lose it uh, yesterday. Um, no, he did not. I mean, that was a commanding lead, and and I think a lot. I saw a lot of people saying that, oh, this was the worst race of the year and stuff. I mean, first of I, all, I, there was the Daytona 500. And like, yeah, there hasn't really been a. There really hasn't been that bad of a race this year. I, mean, I yeah, thought that, that Phoenix was, was that good. Was I mean, I that was just a case of the first couple stages were really competitive because all the top five cars were really even and they, there weren't really any cars that were dialed in yet. And then at the end of the second stage, once Truex's car was dialed in, he started mowing down cars. And that's when I kind of realized like, if this race goes green, it's his to lose. So ended up being right. But just because a driver won by a large amount doesn't necessarily make the race bad in my opinion. Oh no. And I think a lot of people, kind of look at races like that because maybe either a they don't tune in for the whole thing um because they have engagements prior or something like that or they just for some reason don't appreciate racing and they just want an exciting finish so i don't know that's up for each fan to decide themselves but i mean i thought it was a great race overall um you saw lots of passing through the field um and and there was battles you saw comers and goers like we had the last couple of weeks with with Vegas and with with Homestead but something that I saw that I think a lot of people pointed out on Twitter was 
that Kyle Larson had to go through the field multiple times. And, and I thought that was very entertaining to watch because it seems like, well, where's Larson go? And then he's right back up there. Yeah, that was pretty cool to me. He had he had one penalty early in the race for speeding. Got sent and dropped down. He, start, no, he started from the back. Correct that. It's going to sound like I don't know how to speak, but he started the race from the rear. He moved up into the top 10, got a penalty, moved to the back again, moved to the front again, got another speeding penalty from the top two, and then he still ended up finishing six, I believe. So he passed – from statistics I saw on Twitter, he passed 145 cars under green. So, yeah, it was a good day's work for him. Yeah, he's definitely earning that paycheck with 145 cars passed. Yeah. Um, so, that that yeah. tells you Imagine right there. That, yeah, that tells you right there that um, the at least for this track, the, the package is working um, for the 750 package, which I'm glad that they came back down to the 750 package for these races. And then there, there'll be that that way at Darlington and the new track with the Nashville super speedway as well. So that bodes well for me for, for the rest of the championship this year. Um, but along the lines of talking about Larson, I kind of want to talk about Hendrick in general. It seems like this year they're being kind of dominant. I mean, we saw Alex Bowman, uh, getting in trouble and wreck in the first stage and he came back and finished 13th like nothing happened if you just looked at the finish you would think he just had a standard um day where he could have possibly been in the top 10 uh you know the five and the 24 already have wins but where has chase elliott been he was there for the for the clash and the road course but where has he been the rest of the year that is a little surprising to me but then again, he hasn't been bad. He just hasn't had the the lights out speed. I kind of put him in the same category with Harvick or whatever to where he gets consistent speed and he gets decent finishes. He just doesn't have a car that can win any given week per se. So he's just had bad luck with finishes. I mean, Daytona Road Course, he dominated, had something go wrong, spun out, all that kind of stuff. Homestead, I'm not really sure how he finished 14th. It was probably just an off day. Las Vegas was another decent race. He just didn't necessarily have a good finish. And Phoenix was arguably his best race yet, even though he didn't be a lap. He started sixth, he finished fifth. So I wouldn't be surprised if he starts moving upwards as the season goes on. Yeah, and like we talked about um, last week, we're – we're thinking about how many different winners we can have. Well, I don't think we were ever going to count out the nine. So I think maybe we can continue this streak of having a different winner every week and we don't have a repeat winner for the next couple of weeks. Uh, but we can get into yeah. that later. Um, yeah, we'll get into that later because I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to break your heart, but I do think we're getting multiple time winners soon. Yeah. Well, so I'm going to have it best way. Something else that was polarizing was the PJ1. Um, a lot of people were making fits of it that it made the ba race bad, um, but the race wasn't bad uh, at, at my first point. And secondly, you guys were all crying for it at, at other places because it made the racing better. So I kind of want to get into that uh, with you, Nathan, and kind of see where you're at with what happened with the PJ1 for Sunday's race and then how you feel about the product overall. Personally, I don't mind the traction compound at certain tracks because I remember when they implemented it at New Hampshire, the racing instantly got better. And ever since I've kept it there, 
the racing at New Hampshire has been consistently better than previous. Same goes for Pocono in turn three. Same goes for Bristol when they added it on the bottom. I think it's just a matter of how much it affects the racing. If you can make it, if PJ1 can make something a second group viable, then that's great. The only problem is, say, Sunday when the PJ1 becomes the dominant lane. And that's really what what kind of has a negative effect on the racing because it essentially moves the one lane to a different place. But like you said, still, it was a very good race. I don't think it was that big of a problem. But, I mean, things can always be improved upon. But I don't really complain about it too much just because the race itself wasn't that badly affected. Yeah, well, I don't know. Maybe the race was kind of affected because I'm, you know, kind of going to piggyback off of what you said with with some tracks, it, it really does work wonders, but in other tracks, it doesn't. So I kind of want to analyze it just a little bit and say, if you look at the tracks where it works, I think the main two where it works, uh, I know you included Pocono. I'm not going to include Pocono, but if you look at Bristol and you look at New Hampshire, those two tracks have something that's very um, interesting that's in common with each of them, and that's it. They have an outside or an upper groove that is dominant. So when they put the PJ one on the inside of New Hampshire, it accelerated, um, you know, that inside lane and it allowed for multiple grooves of racing at a primarily middle groove ish racetrack that a lot of fans didn't find very competitive or just outright boring. Um, and then with the use at Bristol, a predominantly, high lane track it kind of shifts the preferred lane down like you said but because the outside line is so dominant we see it move up the track kind of like a dirt race would uh, on a regular saturday night Um, but also it allows for multiple grooves to be just as fast and it allows for more side by side battling the problem that i saw sunday was like you said it just moved that preferred groove up a lane and when you put the pj1 on the outside it seems to be that you really stunt passing because I feel like if we didn't have the PJ one at all Sunday, we had a hot slick racetrack, 750 horsepower. We could have seen a better race because we could have seen guys getting under each other and kind of nudging them out of the way, the little bump and run move that um, I guess people would call talk about, about with old Bristol. Um, But you know, if you're running, a guy down and you get under him and you move him up the track, you're going to pass him. If you're running a guy down with the PJ one and the dominant groove is on the outside and you try to cut under him mid corner, you might pass him. And that's a very big might. And we saw that only a few cars could really pass well under those conditions on Sunday. Of course, we talked about Larson being one of them and you know, his Hendrick teammate of Alex Bowman, uh, was one as well, you know, Kyle Busch, other guys like that who were actually being able to turn down and turn, or I guess it's turn two now, um, and, and move back up. So I don't know. I, I don't like seeing it on the outside of racetracks because I don't think it's doing anything to add to the actual racing. Yeah, I agree. I think Phoenix is definitely a unique case to where the groove basically just got moved up. I didn't see how it added the second lane because it didn't 
the bottom we just made the bottom a lot more difficult to use once the compound got broken into though at Pocono it does work on the outside just because that's a bottom lane turn three at Pocono has always been a bottom lane thing so I get that it works there it just doesn't work at Phoenix in my mind not that it doesn't work at all it just doesn't do what it does at other tracks yeah and you know I I feel like Phoenix you know, it has its bad races. If it's cloudy at Phoenix, it's going to be a bad race. But you can probably say that about most racetracks as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because, of course, hot, slicker conditions provide for better racing. But it's like we see it a mile and a half like Kentucky or Texas or Charlotte. That PJ1 does absolutely nothing. So I don't I, – I, I commend the racetracks for trying. I really do. But I think it's a waste of time and money at most of these tracks other than the two that, you know – we've said with Bristol and New Hampshire and then, you know, Pocono turn three. Um, I definitely could have seen it used at old Pocono where they already had that grip strip, uh, where they had that repaved asphalt using it under that lane since it was the middle of the corner as well. Um, but I don't know. I think it's just wasting the tracks time and money. Mm-hmm. I agree. I don't really think there's any other way I could describe it, to be honest. I've already kind of gone into it. So I guess what you said sums it up really well. Yeah, and uh, I guess some other stuff we had talked about uh, previous to recording uh, was that we saw a great race from 2311 on Sunday. Bubba was working his way through the field he was in the top 10 but then something happened that happened so many times in 2018 that i'm just like this is why i'm glad mike wheeler is not the crew chief of denny hamlin anymore he kept him out and kept him out and kept him out and he came home with only a top 20 top 15 yeah i guess we're both hamlin fans so i guess the nicest way to put it is i think he's a great talent in terms of building the car so i never really thought that that was a problem the only thing that i did notice when he was hamlin's crew chief is that there wasn't really a lot of position retention if it was a long green flag run they would either lose spots on a pit cycle or if a caution came out whatever strategy they picked seemed to be the opposite of what worked and it's like you said it's happened time and time again I'm not surprised at it. A lot of people are because they didn't really pay much attention to it when he was not Bubba Wallace's crew chief. But I just think that at the end of the day, strategy, it almost depends on what – forgive me for absolutely butchering what I'm about to say, but the best way to explain it is that sometimes doing a little is better than doing a lot and – that worked out perfectly on Sunday. The guys who did the basic standard pit call to just take your tires, they did well. And the drivers who were on contrarian strategies did not. So I feel like that was one of the problems that they had in 2018 was that they were, you always saw them running contrarian strategies. And at what point did they realize that you don't always have to be different? You know, sometimes doing less is doing more. Right, and I don't, I don't know why you would chant something like that, uh, because yeah, you know you're talking about your first fan. top ten for your for your team. You know, where it, this is, 
this is not just a, a, a we've already won a race and we're already in the playoffs. Let's try and win some more on alternate strategies type thing. This is mm-hmm. the first top 10 for our team. So I, I don't get the decision. I honestly think that maybe Mike Wheeler has just not evolved uh, with stage racing. I'm not sure how long he's been a crew chief, but that strategy would have worked before we had stages because the longer green flag ones were possible. So if we got a if we had a 312 green flag lap race, something like that could have won him the race, but we didn't because that's never going to be something that happens again. Yeah, I think part of it is with how many laps there were left in the race, too. I think that was sort of the real killer. If there was three laps to go in the race, it might have worked. But over 20 laps left, I tires matter too much in the 750 package to, to justify keeping someone on old tires in that long, even if they were only a few laps old. I don't know. Maybe he just watched the Xfinity race on Saturday and saw the caution after caution after caution and thought yeah. he was going to catch one. But, you know, you've got yeah. a, a talent pool that's slightly, or I should Better. say, yeah, just, just a bit talented compared to the premier stock car series on the planet. So, yeah, I, I don't know. It reminded me a lot of Fontana in 2017 where I think Hamlin was third in the race and there was a caution with about 15 or 20 laps left. And they chose to stay out, low downforce, 750 horsepower or more. And I believe they went from – second on the final restart to 20th it was crazy in two laps and it's like ever since that day i'm like just something just sometimes you have to take your tires i mean because that's the hard thing about gambling in the in the 750 package is that if you stay out and everyone's tires are not equalized yet then you're toast right and, and um, i don't know any other way to put it yeah and th- that team's under a microscope just because of who their driver is and who uh, yeah, one of they the got two a lot owners of fans. are. So you've got to you've got to succeed, and you can't blow it when you have the chance to do something great. And that's what Mike Wheeler did this week. And and I hate to say it because you know they got got Denny a, a Daytona 500 win, but you know now he's building and leading a team that is supposed to be kind of the next generation of ownership push in NASCAR. So they need to do well. And and I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was really disappointing from my standpoint. Yeah. I'm not going to say I was surprised by it, but yes, I was definitely disappointed. Um, I, I will say this though, when he was, I think competition director at Levine family racing last year, he did a good job in that role. And I think that, I would I would not at all be surprised in the future to see him move up to that with twenty three eleven if the crew chiefing thing doesn't work out because obviously Hamlin is gonna shoehorn him into anything because you know how much he loves that man. Yeah, absolutely. So I I personally I was surprised that he was he went back to crew chiefing. I thought for sure that competition director was gonna be something that he's he would thrive at for a long time. Yeah, and I, if if I'm Denny Hamlin, I'm I'm sweet talking someone like Cole Pern to come back and, oh and be gosh. my crew chief or something like that. That would be that be because something. yeah, I mean, like you said, Wheels, he's he's very good in the sport. I just don't trust his gut feeling when it comes to sitting on the pit box on Sundays. Um, and you know, crew chiefing is not from for everyone. That's why there's only forty guys that do it each week. 
Um, so I'd love to see him back in a in a more managing role where he can he can push the team where it needs to be. Speaking of new teams, let's talk about the other new team in the sport, and that's Trackhouse. Of course, their driver Daniel Suarez. He did a very good job on Sunday, but I kind of want to take it back to Saturday and talk about the Xfinity race because he was in the booth with Joe Logano. Um, I thought he did amazing. What were your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. He did a really good job. I I feel like I remember when he first came to NASCAR and so many people were knocking on him because, like, oh, my God, he doesn't, you know, why are why, you know, you're not speaking fluent English? But it's like you do realize that he's only spoken English for – the time he's been in NASCAR. So the fact that he commentated the race like four or five years after learning the language, that's pretty impressive to me. Right. Well, you know, this is going to be a little rude to some people, but they're probably the ones that um, are just mad because they can't speak two languages. Um, yeah, basically. I don't think so, people realize how hard that is. Yeah. Well, you know, I've been learning Spanish for the last couple of years and it's been a struggle for me. And English is supposedly been it's supposed to be harder to learn than any other language because we have different colloquialisms per region. And then we have different rules for the same words and, and, and all that stuff. So I thought Daniel did a great job. Um, I had a little bit of trouble understanding him at first, and this is Fox's fault, not his enunciations or anything like that, because it seemed like they had his mic turned down or the engines turned up when he was, when he was talking, but I could hear Adam Alexander and Joel Agano, um, you know, perfectly. So I was wondering if anyone else had that issues. No, I was able to hear him pretty good, actually. Yeah, it was granted, like though, the first I'm... stage for me. Yeah, granted, I was watching on a computer and not a TV, so. Yeah. No, but he did really good. And then when he spoke in Spanish and commentated the, the those couple laps, um, it was really cool because I'd never seen anything like that before. Um of course, my fiance, she's Mexican-American, so she's fluent mm-hmm. in Spanish, and she knows Daniel on a somewhat personal level. Um, and so it was really emotional for her uh, to be hearing it on the American broadcast rather than just the Fox Deportes that she'd been watching when she was living in Mexico um, and everything. And it was just really cool because I didn't even notice that he switched to Spanish because – I'm to the point where I can understand Spanish, but I can't speak it back. So, so I thought, I just thought it was all around really cool. And I'm glad Fox went that way because, you know, we're trying to push this diversity stuff um, and it's finally happening. And that just, that just makes me happy because, you know, NASCAR and motorsports in general should be inclusive because, you know, if you look at the rest of the world, even even here in the states, you see an IMSA and IndyCar. You see an international cast of drivers, and 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 I'd love to get to that um, with the Cup guys. Yeah, that's actually really neat to watch. It almost reminded me of um, some of the F1 post race interviews where you'll have drivers switching between languages effortlessly. It never fails to amaze me to see those guys do that. It's like it's something that I could never really comprehend because outside of learning Spanish in high school, I, I can't speak a lick of Spanish anymore. So the ability to learn multiple languages and switch between them like that, that's something that I cannot really grasp and probably never will be able to grasp. Yeah. And I, I don't know, just like you said, seeing it in other, other sports and stuff like that, seeing, 
interviews from from other media outlets in various countries where where drivers in Formula One are speaking their native tongues and and stuff like that. It's always kind of heartwarming to me because, you know, I guess being American, I kind of always put people in boxes that they all should be, you know, speaking English and all this kind of other stuff just because, you know, that's what I'm used to when I walk out the door. But then I hear other languages and stuff like that. And it's like, it puts it puts it in a perspective like, oh, there's this whole other subset of people that this person's communicating with, you know, that's in his fan base that are feeling kind of touched and more important now because, hey, he's not speaking in English, you know, to the Sky F1 team or whatever. He's speaking in my tongue. And it's just really cool. Yeah, I would agree. I hope that more NASCAR fans are a little more willing to uh, appreciate it, if that makes sense. You know, I don't know if it's because of the audience that shows up for Friday and Saturday races or compared to the the broader audience that shows up to the Sunday race, but I didn't see a, a lot of flack for, for that. I didn't see it. Yeah, uh, that was good. To, that was good to, to see. Daniel I thought there would be a lot. Because, I, I mean, I remember when Lee Diffie was commentating for NBC for a couple of cup races, and they were saying, oh, my God, he's he's British. And it's like, he's he's not British. He's Australian. And they're complaining they couldn't understand him. And it's like, come on. Like, how? I think it's just people are – they're. I don't want to be stereotypical or anything, but it's like, come on, you got to be better than that. Yeah, well, I mean, this kind of leads us into our discussion today, and that's that's mm-hmm. broadcasters and kind of why they matter to motorsports and stuff like that. So I'll just take um, Lee Diffie as an example um, because he's one of my favorite ones. These guys are tasked with putting not only emphasis on what's going on, but educating fans who are new and even older and also – projecting emotion into into a a racing situation so that it sounds more exciting than it might even look um so as far as as someone like lee diffie um you know you can see him he he came into nascar and i'd love for him to come back and um and kind of be on the team uh to and from you know different races he does indycar he's done supercars when he was still working in australia i've seen him with supercross i just love people like that who can who can make their enthusiasm burn off on you or i should say rub off on you and and get you excited for something you might not be normally excited for because you're tuning in for the first time yeah i agree i think that broadcasting is really really important people don't necessarily understand the true importance of it until you become a diehard fan because you saw it this week with Murray Walker who died he was I believe 97 you saw that a lot of people really really invested in him they're like man this is a big loss for sport and a lot of people are like you know why are people making a big deal about it it's like people don't realize that he was pretty much the voice of F1 for a long time and if you watched an F1 highlight from the 90s or late 90s from the 70s you probably heard him at some point without knowing it so i think it's a big testament to how important the broadcast actually is because they do like i said they do pretty much tell the story yeah and, and murray walker you know himself he he always made formula one racing from that era so much more exciting. I mean, you're talking about an era where sometimes you'd have, 
you know, drivers one by eight laps. or less. Yeah, drivers eight or less drivers on the lead lap, and sometimes drivers ahead by laps, like you said. But his voice just was so, I guess, empowering to to listeners' emotions that you just got excited for what whatever was going on on track and. I don't know. It's kind of that classic voice that's always in the back of your head um, when you think about that's one you think of Murray Walker. Yeah, exactly. It's just really, really interesting to see how much a broadcaster can affect the perception of a series like that. Because you, you mean you see it even in NASCAR today, people will realize like, oh my gosh, Mike Joy. Say Mike Joy for example, he really makes a race sound good. Yeah, and 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 he can he can do something. Um, that is is something that's a talent that I think most commentators have. Um, he can he can narrate the race as it's happening, but he can also inject emotion in, you know, times of solidarity and and stuff like that. I mean, you saw with the um the stuff that happened last year um, with the social justice movement that that um, Steve Fels commented on at Atlanta and directly, you know, said stuff to the drivers. He kind of inflected his own stuff about that. After that speech from Steve Phelps. And then also with the uh, whole grid walking out with Bubba at Talladega, he just put so much emotion into something and just made that moment so much more powerful than what it would have been. Because if it would have just been some guys walking a car down pit road, no one knows what's going on. And it, 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 he just he just did that beautifully. Yeah, I guess you could say that they're very uh, – what their job is for racing, it's very make or break. Like, they can completely change how we view a race. Yeah, and I think um, looking, looking at, you know, commentators in general, especially for guys like the MRN and PRN guys – guys that do it over radio, they kind of have to they have to call the race kind of like you're literally talking to a blind person who can't see what's going on. So they have to they have to put flavor in it and they have to visualize with words what's going on. And you could listen to you could listen to a race uh, from probably you could listen to the race where Jeff Burton led every lap at New Hampshire and probably still get excited um, compared to watching it on TV. So commentators really, they do add so much to each race. And um, I guess it's, it's a tough job because you can see on both sides of, of everything where you've got good ones and you've got bad ones. So I don't know if you want to kind of talk about who your, who your favorite and who your least favorite are so that we can kind of go back and forth on who these guys are and, and what they infect on, on the broadcast. Oh, yeah. First of all, I don't necessarily have one favorite commentator in particular because there's so many good ones. But one that's always kind of stood out to me is Alan Bestwick because he started with MRN doing radio. He did a good job there. And then he switched over to TV. He did a great job there for NBC. He had numerous calls that you could probably still remember to this day, including the ones when he came back for ESPN in the 2010s. And then after NASCAR, he moved to IndyCar, and he had really good calls over there for an Indy 500. So it's like anything you put that guy in, he will call it and do it well. It's just it never failed to impress me. And he's another one of those guys that kind of has one of those classic voices like we talked with uh, Murray Walker. Right. He, he he just 
he speaks and and you think racing or you think NASCAR. And I know he's done football and basketball and other stuff with ESPN uh, lately, but he's kind of one of those commanding voices that you just can't wait to hear on Sunday. And I, I miss him, certainly. Yeah, I do, too. I mean, I think that the fact that he still did such an equally good job with IndyCar as he did NASCAR, I think it kind of shows it's like he still got it, you know. It's a shame that he's not commentating racing as is because I think that if you were to put him in the booth today, he could still do the same job that he's done for years. And some of the some of the guys that, that I think kind of equate this, but in different series, one of my favorite one of my favorite commentators has always been Ralph Shaheen. He's got mm-hmm. a a I guess stadium style voice. He sounds like a stadium announcer, but he's also got the class of of some of these guys that we listen to, like Mike Joy and Beswick and Ken Squire and the like. And he inflects just enough excitement, but also tells enough of a story that it pushes the broadcast to the next level. And I know he's a Supercross guy. He hasn't been doing it lately. Um, But a a lot of fans might not know that he used to broadcast with Speed Channel um, Mm -hmm. with NASCAR stuff as well as he did, you know, dirt racing with Outlaws and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah, I guess you could say that certain commentators you just recognize instantly is a good they do a good job and i think you could probably say the same for some analysts obviously their job is not to call the race but the ones i guess let's give larry mcdonald as an example for me he's always seems like an analyst that can he can put his thoughts into words which is one of the most important things for any broadcaster whether they're a lead commentator analyst you name it your whole job is to put your thoughts into words yeah, and another guy, uh, kind of in the same vein uh, for me, I know he doesn't really get enough credit, in my opinion, is Andy Petrie. When I go back oh, yeah, and watch ESPN, yeah, and when I go back and watch ESPN races, uh, he's one of those voices that I'm glad is there um, because he's so educational about it. Just like Larry Mack, if you've got a question, he's probably going to ask or answer it without you asking it. Uh, obviously, because you're not there. They emphasize so much on the technology and the strategy and all this stuff, and it's like you learn a lot from from the analysts, and, and I think they're always going to be a good addition to any booth. And that's something I think that's kind of lacking um, with Larry not being at the track right now in the Fox booth. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and even, you know, we see with NBC, we've got Steve Latart there. Talked about, you know, your main – commentator and broadcaster and then you've got you know your analyst but then most booths always have that third guy the color commentator so he's usually right. the guy that inflects a little bit of comedic relief or right. or is right. the funny guy in there and i wanted to kind of ask you about that role because i don't know right. if we necessarily need it yeah i guess that's a good question um i don't necessarily mind it i just think that some networks will have a different approach to it. I think Fox is kind of the one that I think of when it comes to color commentator because they always have a an old funny guy, like whether it's Daryl Walter or Clint Boyer or Terry Bradshaw for the NFL. They always seem to, to really, really love the comedy side of it, which I enjoy too. But I think that, like you said, I could live with or without anything works. I think that ESPN did a really good job with Beswick, Jared, and Petrie. They weren't necessarily very animated, and they weren't necessarily 
like super funny, but they did a great job of calling races. And I think that my favorite um, favorite blend of that is probably NBC with uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr., for example. Like he's sort of he's got the same analysis skills that some of the more well known ones have, but he's also professional at the same time. I think that he's sort of like a Benny Parsons, if that makes sense. Like they kind of like a, a happy medium. Yeah, and uh, uh, no hate to Clint Boyer or you know even no, Darren Waltrip yeah. in the Fox booth because I love those guys. They're great. I could love them too. It's like I could just I'm sort of like I don't necessarily have that much of a preference. I just like a little bit of both if that makes sense. And yeah, I don't think it's well, necessarily. Is, I think it's more of the networks that are yeah, telling the people think, how to act than it is because the, you've seen Darren Waltrip in years past. He gives crazy insightful analysis. He just doesn't. I think that they're sort of more they're more told by the networks to say, Hey, we need you to, we need you to act like you're on crack. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's not going to be too, <laughs> too far fetched for Clint. Um, but yeah, like you said, he's, yeah, he's hyped up. You'd see uh Darrell Walter upon a practice day or qualifying and he'd mm-hmm. just be he's so totally thorough with yeah. everything. And it's then he just goes are... goofy on Sunday. Right. I feel like that's sort of more of a broadcast thing than it is an individual thing because they can clearly do both. I wish that they, I sort of wish that the the networks would allow them to be themselves. Yeah, and and like you were saying um, with Dale Jr. and then of course you you also said Dale Jarrett, um, drivers as that color ish commentator I think are very good because you can see you can see this guy's passion about the sport. He's a little bit fun, but he's also giving you sort of an analyst role. Um, because he can tell you what's going on. And I think especially drivers that have just been out of the cars make for even better broadcasters. So like your your Jeff Gordons and your um, Dale Juniors, they've made for very good broadcasters these past few years. But I kind of want to move a little bit towards the older, like the TNT side. You saw oh, yeah, I remember Kyle Petty. Um Kyle Petty is always looked at as one of the goofy types, and he's always grouped in with Michael Waltrip and Daryl Waltrip and, and those guys. Right. And I, I want to sit here and tell you that Kyle Petty is one of the most passionate and informative people he's in the very, sport, and we need to give him more right. credit. I, I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, like any commentator, he's got strong opinions. Obviously, he's well-known for that. And as Kyle Petty would say, let me say this. Um, he's a lot he doesn't necessarily get the credit he deserves I think that his role the role he's done with NBC I think is really good in the uh, the pre-race and the post-race segments especially yeah and I and and I wish uh, that we could see see NBC in particular rotate a little bit more because they got so many people oh my calling gosh, races yeah. Um, I think I think it's to the point where we've got too many people that even right. could be in the I, that's why I'm glad that which I'm glad that they do have a lot of people because it's a good problem to have. I mean, Kyle Petty in the post-race analysis, I mean, that's he's good enough to be a commentator on his own. Oh, absolutely. And the absolutely. fact that we get him for post-race, it's like we pretty – when we get we get Dale Jr. during the race, we get Dale Jarrett during the race, we get Kyle Petty in the pre-race and post-race, we get Steve Retart at some points during the race. It's like there's so much good commentators that – that are under NBC to where, you know, you don't, you don't think of it until race over. It's like, 
they really do have a good problem with having so much talent. NBC does get a lot of flack for their presenting commentator, though, and that's Rick Allen. Um, and I want to kind of ask you, um, I don't know how much you watched the truck series when you were younger, when he was kind of the, mm-hmm. the man for Speed Channel and, and then Fox for the truck series or not. But it seems like, I don't know if it's NBC inflicting their intentions onto Rick or or whatever, but I feel like Rick Allen was the man at calling truck races, and he's been the joke since he's been in the NBC booth. And yeah, I, I don't know if that's that, a fair statement, but that seems right. to be the general consensus of the. Fans. I don't want to be like I'm not trying to burn any bridges here because we're a new podcast. So I think that um, you're right on that assessment to some degree because I I loved having him in the truck race. I know that he's got his catchphrases every commentator does, but. I think that the the one thing as to why he's been so criticized in Cup is that he, he's sort of predictable, if that makes sense. Like, whenever a car right. spins, you know what he's going to say. Whenever a finish, you know what he's going to say. It's like you could you could basically predict what's going to be said before it's said. And I don't really – I can't really fault it, to be honest with you, because I, I highly doubt that any of us could do a even similar job, so I'm not going to – I don't yeah, have anything and, to talk, so... And I don't know. I mean, it just seems like he's getting bullied for the past however many years NBC's been right. like, I'm not saying he's a bad commentator. I think it's just the fact that Alan Bestwick is on the sidelines, I think, is sort of is sort of what's making a lot of the fans sort of reminisce on what they had. It's like, which I understand, you know, it's like everyone, everyone wants Alan Bestwick, and I don't blame him, so... Yeah, I mean, I do too, but I mean, I, I think Rick right. Allen does fantastic um, when he's doing it. He, he does kind of make mistakes every now and then, um, but, you know, all of the commentators make mistakes, and most of them call themselves out on it. Um, so I guess the only other thing would, to me for, for him to do uh, is is kind of push back at the – narrative that NBC wants to make everything drama and everything um, kind of just just some sort of narrative that this is going to happen because X, Y, and Z, and we have to focus on these guys because their wives did this or their kids did that, and everything's all about being wholesome or being dramatic. And, and I think if he, if he didn't have to inflect that on all the fans, he would return to that very good commentator that he was for the truck series. Yeah, um, I agree. I think that part of it is just NBC in general trying to make everything dramatic. It's like I wish I wish they would do what ESPN does and sort of realize that they don't have to be speaking every single second, if that makes sense. Because sometimes what made the ESPN booth so good with Bestwick and all the other guys is that they didn't speak. Well, yeah, on the NBC side of things, we just saw Dale Jr. after he retired um, come on, and over the past couple of years, just add some kind of cohesion to that that broadcasting booth. It was good, but now it's it's kind of great. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that assessment. That one person is sometimes the final piece of the puzzle that a team needs. Same thing with um, ESPN in the '90s with the whole you had Bob Jenkins, you had Benny Parsons, you had Ned Jarrett as your three commentators and it's like those guys in particular they show the importance of having sort of a linchpin to keep everyone together yeah and i think dale jr's kind of 
been that guy for the NBC booth since he's come in. You know, he and Steve Letarte have worked together a lot, and and just them being so cohesive with each other has kind of brought that group together. Um, he and Jeff Burton are good friends, and it seems like even he and Rick Allen have become good friends. And being friends in the booth seems to be working for them because since he's been in the booth, the quality has gotten better because it seems more fluid between the people up there because it's not as, I guess, stuffy in the booth. There's there's a little bit more fun going on. Right. It's not, like, too much towards, like, you know, not a clown show, and it's also not too, too, you know, professional. I think it's sort of like a nice in-between with him being there. Yeah, and that's kind of what we were talking about earlier with that's what you kind of want from, from somebody we were talking about, kind of how Fox was pushing – you know, mm-hmm. I guess probably even Clint now a little bit on 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 being a little bit too comical, um, but but that works. And and I'll say even even lately with the Fox booth, Clint Boyer being in addition to it brought new life to that two man group. And while I feel that the two man group between Mike Joy and Jeff Gordon were working just because Mike Joy is Mike Joy and Jeff Gordon is Jeff Gordon having having that bit of flavor that comes along with Clint and a guy that's recently got out of the cars with the 550 and 750 horsepower packages that they've been going back and forth through for the last couple of years I think it's an it's it's evolved Fox's booth to where I'm having more fun this year than I have since Larry Mack left the booth when Jeff Gordon came on yeah, I agree. Maybe Clint Boyer's the reason why the race has been so good this year. <laughs> Are you saying that as a as a jab at him because he's maybe not out there? Him. He's not no, running. No, no, no. I'm saying like maybe we need Clint Boyer in the booth for the racing to get this good. Maybe this is what we've been missing all along. Yeah, and you know what? It goes back to what we started off with the guys in the booth kind of make or break the show. So we can watch a very exciting race, but if the commentary is stale, if the guys in the booth are stiff as bricks, no one's going to have fun. Right. I agree wholeheartedly. I think there has to be some sort of happy medium. Yeah. And I mean, even like you were saying earlier with the ESPN booth, those guys, they weren't necessarily comical about it or they weren't always excited about it, but they gave enough excitement to get your blood pumping during those situations, but they also let the race speak for themselves. So it's interesting to see the different groups of people and how they let the race either balance itself, inflict enough of their personality onto it to, to boost whatever on, on track or just over, overindulge on some stuff to, to kind of Harper broadcast. So I think this has been a really good discussion um, just based on the fact of kind of getting, two fans' perspectives on what what they like in a broadcast booth and what they see from different broadcasters. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. There's so much that the broadcasters can show the fans, and I think that's one of the reasons why Fox brought Clint Boyer in, because having him on there will probably make it a lot more um, entertaining for, for a fan just seeing the race on Sunday and like, oh, what is this? 
Right, and you need you need that entertainment. Um, and then you need someone with a little bit of of a tamer, but kind of education style stuff, like kind of like a Larry Mack or or even a a Steve Letarte and a, a Jeff Burton, even on the NBC side. And and I think we're 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 kind of in the peak of the modern era. Uh, but something that you said earlier is that we kind of have lived in the golden era of broadcasting. So I kind of want to go back and forth on a few shout outs of who were some of the some of the guys that we have seen with classic voices and called classic races um, and some of our favorite memories uh, with those guys. Yeah, um, I agree because we're like I said, we lived in a, a golden era of announcers. Tap. We've seen some of the guys from the 90s come back and commentate. We've seen the current commentators. We've seen every iconic broadcaster known to man. We've got to hear call a race. Even, shoot, even Ken Squire called a few Darlington races for NBC. Even if it was just for a few um, a few green flag runs, it's still, um, it's still something crazy to think that fans born in 2002 like me still got to hear Ken Squire commentate a race. Well, something interesting, uh, at least for the past few times that I've been there, he's been in the booth for, um, for the PA system at, at Talladega as well, and that's something that's really cool, uh, for me is to be able to hear live commentary from Ken Squire, um, you know, at the race that that's happening, because of course I've never been to Darlington, um, but I don't I don't know that we're gonna see that this year since Fox has the throwback race this year. Yeah, I, that's a shame. I hope that they can get somebody in the booth for a throwback race. But then again, Mike Joyce called it so long that fans from from older time periods can still at least relate to it, to his commentary. Yeah, and, and he's one of those guys that I'm going to severely miss um, just just because he's kind of the NASCAR voice. Because, you know, a lot of people know, know Mike Joy and they know he's been with Fox for their 21st year this year. Um, but you know, Mike Joy was with TNN and, and I believe CBS before that in the nineties. And, and he's just always been around NASCAR. And, and for me, Mike Joy's kind of just been the voice for NASCAR. Yeah, I agree. I think that we've grown up in the time period. So where we've had certain announcers become iconic and that's something that's really valuable. I think that once these guys retire, it's going to be very weird at least to me, because I'm so used to hearing the same guys commentate over and over and over again. Yeah, but it's something that, you know, we can look back on and in, in, in a few years and say, hey, we got to experience that. And I think, um, I know I'm a few years older than you, but it's it's cool kind of getting older and seeing some of the stuff that people look back on and say, oh, that's a classic race, or I remember that call, or I remember that move, mm-hmm. and it's cool kind of be like, oh, I remember that too. I was I was there, <laughs> or, or stuff like that. So I don't know. Um, of course, we're going to dearly miss some of these guys once they they move on and they retire. You know, like, like DW for me is one of the guys that severely miss, and we talked about Bestwick mm-hmm. earlier. Um, but I think right now – um, with the with the guys that we've got, with the racing that we've got going on, we're in a pretty good situation to have fun for at least the next couple of years. So, yeah, please, Mike Joy, if you're listening, don't don't leave us. 
during an intermission yeah, we went to the tower and my dad and I were like speaking last, uh, and one of the iconic that worked there <laughs> was talking to us about yeah. but fans hey, complaining to him that there was no truck on, racing uh, during those years and everything. And I was like, well, why don't you do a double header on Saturday with trucks and Xfinity? And he scoffed at me saying that we couldn't sell the tickets and it wouldn't be worth the time or the money. And lo and behold, a couple of years later, and NASCAR moves viewers, the date to February, one of those classic and they put you think of in, 20 years down the line. Uh, for um, is there anybody like that for you um, that you think that that could be good coming up in the line? Maybe like an Alec Nirvana or someone like that. Oh man, I'm not really sure. I mean, obviously Lee Diffie's commentated for a long time in a variety of series, but I think that having him in IndyCar is probably going to become the next iconic commentator for America. I think or an American series, at least. I think that he's going to be there a long time and he's going to become recognizable really fast. Yeah, and I hadn't even thought about that, honestly. You know, NBC's had their contract for two years now and he's been on every race broadcast that I remember. I'm just in NASCAR mode because we haven't quite got to the IndyCar season, I guess. But yeah, he, right. he's one of those guys that I just, I think of when I think of adrenaline rush racing, even if it's the most boring race, that man can make it exciting. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, with that, I think, you know, we, we've had some really good discussion on commentators and and, and how broadcasting emphasizes the race uh, around it. And um, I, I kind of just want to go ahead and move on to this weekend. You know, we've got a couple races at Atlanta, um, which is a old school track, old surface, and one that fans have been kind of on the fence for the last couple of years. Uh, are you excited for this weekend, Nathan? Uh, yeah, I am. I think it's going to be a little less chaotic of a race. It'll be more like what we've seen the last couple of weeks. So it's an old surface. It's going to be kind of spread out racing. Tires are going to matter a lot. It's going to be something that if you're, if you're a person who's like a purist and they want the right cars to win, I think this is going to be your week. Yeah, and a good thing about it is the trucks are back this weekend, um, and I kind of had a funny story, and if you don't mind, Nathan, I'd like to go ahead and share it. Yeah, go ahead. If you guys probably do or don't know, um, my dad has been working uh, at AMS with the Legends series for quite some time now. They did exactly what he laughed at me for, and I, I just... I love telling that story because I always think it's funny because I always like to tell people I'm the reason that we have a doubleheader on Saturday at Atlanta. Maybe um, maybe we need you to talk more and predict more things. Yeah, so speaking of the doubleheader, we, we got the trucks and Xfinity back to back on Saturday. And in trucks, you know, we've seen the 99. He, he won the first two races of the weekend, so he's someone that we'll be watching and then you see see guys like Grant Enfinger, who was in a Cody Robot truck at, at Las Vegas, come in and, and do a really good job. Um, but I kind of want to focus more on Xfinity, and what are you look for, looking forward to? This is going to sound really lame for the don't like bushwhackers, but I'm actually interested to see how Truex does. His first Xfinity race since 2010, I believe. So this is going to be really interesting to see a cup veteran in a low downforce car on a worn out track against, um, against a lot of young kids. It'll be pretty cool. I think to see, because 
it, it won't be as predictable as say when Kyle Busch hops in the Xfinity car. I think it'll be really cool to have to see Truex race something different for the first time in many years. Yeah, and it's interesting because that was something I hadn't realized. He hasn't, as far as I know, ran a race in either of the lower two series since he won his Bush championships. And that that blows my mind because I'm so used to seeing Denny Hamlin run two or three races a year, Kyle Busch running an excessive amount so much that they had to limit cup drivers. Kyle Larson's been running some as well. Dale Jr., when he was driving, you know, Casey Kane, everybody's running these lower-tier series races. So it's very interesting to see that Martin Truex Jr., a guy who had a lot of success in that series, has never returned. Yeah, I think it's going to be really cool to watch seeing Truex in the McSherry car. I think he's got a shot at a weekend sweep, to be honest with you. Yeah, too bad he's not Provided in the truck series too, man. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. He's, in, he's racing trucks next week at least. Yeah, and we'll have to get into that a little bit later. But, um, yeah, no, it's really cool. Um, I don't know. This is a another show's topic probably, but – I kind of miss having the cup guys in the Xfinity series a little bit. And I don't know if that's just rose colored glasses, uh, like, you know, nostalgia speaks for other people or if it's, if it's something greater than that, but yeah, I'm looking forward to the Xfinity race just, just because he's going to be there. Um, and I can't wait to see what that car does owner points wise, because, you know, it's already got a win with Ty Gibbs. Denny Hamlin's going to drive a couple of races in that car. And then also you're going to have, um, Truex, I think he's doing a couple more starts, maybe one more start in that car, and then Kyle Busch is doing his five. Um, so it, it's gonna be it's gonna be a really cool year for that fifty four car. Yeah, I don't think they're gonna they're not done winning at all in my mind. I would not be surprised if they're the team that sort of dominates in the win column with how many drivers they've had that are all capable of winning races. I mean, Ty Gibbs finished first and second in his two starts, so I think the cup guys should definitely have no issue getting up to speed. Yeah. And I, and I, I would love to see some more battles like we saw with, with um, Chase Briscoe and Kyle Busch last year at Darlington and stuff like that, because that's where I think the bushwhacking is a good thing. But uh, I guess that's another, like I said, another topic for another day. Uh, so let's go ahead and move on to Sunday. Sunday is going to be the first 500-mile race of the season that's not a speedway race. And I kind of wanted to ask, before we get into our picks or, or predictions, um, is a 500-mile race that's not a super speedway race something that you think belongs in NASCAR? Yes. Yes, okay. it does. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even have to comment on this. I, I'm very pierced. Yeah, so... I don't know. I see a lot of flack for it because they're too long and they're too boring and stuff like that. But like at the core of it, cup racing has, at least in the modern era, always been about endurance. And no, we don't see engines and other mechanical components failing over the course of 500 miles anymore. But there's still strain on a driver for that long of a distance and it can provide pretty good racing. And I'm excited to see it uh, for the first time this year in Atlanta. And if they're going to start rolling back some of these, some of these guys or some of the, excuse me, some of these races um, mileage, then do it with 
other places like Texas, some that don't provide very good shows or aren't really difficult for the drivers. Um, but, you know, something else is going on this year is we've had five races and we've had five different winners. Do you think that we're going to get a six different winner on Sunday? No. Really? I'm going to say Ooh. I'm going there. I'm saying no. I'm going to go bold. I'll probably eat my words, but hey, I got to I got to spice it up. So there's been five winners. Who's winning then? Who, who's going well, who's going to be the first repeat? All right. Well, of course, segueing into picks already, then I guess since I have first choice, I based off of our picks, Alex Bowman finished 13th and Brad Keselowski finished in 4th. So I'm going to say Martin Truex goes back to back. You think Martin Truex Jr. is going to win in Atlanta? Well, the reason I say this right now is I could easily be proven wrong. No doubt about it. But the reason I say that is because Stuart Har- Kevin Harvick's usually like the default Atlanta pick for me and a lot of other people. But they don't seem to have the dominant speed that we've kind of come to uh, come to expect from them. So yeah. In the past few years, Truex has finished, I think, a close second in 2019. He finished second or third again in 2020. So I think that if Kevin Harvick's team is not up to par, then I think Truex is going to be the first guy to capitalize when it comes to recent Atlanta success. Yeah, well, um, I'm just going to have to disagree with you there. We'll see what happens on Sunday. Uh, But I'm going to say that we will have winner number six on the year, and I think the the sixth person who's going to – potentially clinch a, a playoff spot is is going to be – and don't rag me on this – is going to be Brad Keselowski because I know we it's had a discussion a last all. week that I said that he wasn't going to have a good year. But... Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, Sam, I, don't, I think Keselowski is going to do just fine. I don't think he's going to have a bad year. Yeah, I, I know I'm kind of teeter-tottering with the the words that I said last week, but, hey – I can do that. It's 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 our podcast. I can say whatever the hell I want. Like you said, the four cars not been on par this year. They've not really had speed. They've made some mistakes on pit road. I don't see them winning. If they're going to win in this first quarter of the year, it's going to be at Atlanta, no doubt. But I think Keselowski comes off some some crappy luck the past couple weeks, and he goes out and does what he's done. I think twice or maybe even three times now, and that's win at Atlanta. Uh, if he's if definitely if he's running that auto trader scheme, he's gonna win it. I don't think he is this weekend. No, he is. Oh, he is. Oh yeah. Well, that's set in stone. Then there you go. I've, all right, you're you're really confident about it being. I'm set really in stone. confident, Brad Keselowski. It'll be his only win this year. Right. I'm just I'm just going default with Truex because it's, JGR is a long run team, and Truex and Hamlin had the two best long run cars for all of last year, and Truex has finished top three to four in the last few Atlanta races. And the fact that it's going to probably come down to a long green flag run, it's almost like I I feel like I have no other option than to pick him because I went into this year thinking, all right, let's just pencil Kevin Harvick in for Atlanta. And it's like, okay, maybe Stuart Haas is not is – not, their program's not what I thought they would be. So I got to go somewhere different. So I figured, all right, Truist is my backup. Yeah, well, what always seems to happen to me is – when we were doing fantasy racing previously, if I if I picked Harvick for this race, Brad Keselowski would win. If I picked Brad Keselowski, Harvick would win in the past four or five years. Um, mm-hmm. So probably Harvick's going to wind up winning and proving us both wrong. 
but we'll just have to wait and see. Um, I yeah. love Atlanta. It is my home track, and I can't wait to watch, sadly, from the television, 500 miles uh, of hot and slick racing. But with that caveat, I think if we're going to have a repeat winner, like you say we are, it's not going to be the 19. I think whoa, that, whoa, okay. That's, that it's gonna that's be a bold the, one. No, it's gonna if it's going to be anyone, it's going to be Kyle Larson. Oh, okay. That's that's nice. I, yeah. I was confused. I thought you were talking about Chris Liddell or whatever. I'm like, what? No, I'm not gonna say Seabill. Like, no, I'm not, uh, no, I'm yeah, not going like, that way. You gotta go. You gotta go with someone like Larson. Yeah, I mean, then again, hot like slick thing. Vegas, yeah. hot slick Atlanta. That can always work too. And I, yeah, I didn't. I figured I would ride the JGR train this week. I was on the Penske train all last week. Yeah. Well. It's going to be interesting to see if we can flop it around. Um, I'm just glad that you're not running away with it. Uh, I wouldn't mind if I was, but, you know, uh, that's that's we'll just forget that I say that. Um, <laughs> well, it's three to two. We got 36 races. Hopefully we don't come down to a tie because I don't know what our tiebreaker is going to be. Um, yeah, we don't know. Yeah, I think that about wraps up the show. So, Thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, been keeping up with our analytics, and we've had quite a bit more downloads uh, than I thought we would at this point. So I really appreciate everyone listening and tuning in. I would really also appreciate if you guys would interact with us on Twitter because we'd love to have some of your opinions on the show. We'd love to have some of you join us like Colton did last week. Um, and you can do that at Twitter. Um with at fan fuel podcast one and that's a capital f capital f capital p and the number one as always and you can listen to us to spotify you can on you can listen to us on spotify on apple Podcasts, and on our simple cast stream we have those links provided uh weekly and we'll love to see you next time thanks bye